The old king's eyes dimmed for a moment, and Carus, staring at him in amazement, realized then that his anger had been all feigned, all show. Now they can return to their wives and their hungry children, and they can say, We will fight the usurpers. When we win, you will have full bellies again, and that will help them forget their hunger for a while. Carus's face twisted in anguish. But to go this far, surely we can share what little... My friend, Duncan said softly, by Reorix's hammer, I swear this. If I agree to their terms, we would all perish. Our race would cease to exist. Carus stared at him. As bad as that? he asked. Duncan nodded. Aye, as bad as that. Few only know this, the leaders of the clans and now you, and I swear you to secrecy. The harvest was disastrous. Our coffers are nearly empty, and now we must hoard what we can to pay for this war. Even for our own people, we will be forced to ration food this winter. With what we have, we calculate that we can make it, barely. Add hundreds of more mouths. He shook his head. Carr stood pondering. Then he lifted his head, his dark eyes flashing. If that is true, then so be it, he said sternly. Better we all starve to death than die fighting each other. Noble words, my friend, Duncan answered. The beating of drums thrummed through the room, and deep voices raised in stirring war chants, older than the rocks of Pax Tharkas, older, perhaps, than the bones of the world itself. You can't eat noble words, though, Chorus. You can't drink them, or wrap them around your feet, or burn them in your fire pit, or give them to children crying in hunger. What about the children who will cry when their father leaves, never to return? Chorus asked sternly. Duncan raised an eyebrow. They will cry for a month, he said simply. Then they will eat his share of the food. And wouldn't he want it that way? With that, he turned and left the Hall of Thanes, heading for the battlements once more. As Duncan counseled Carus in the Hall of Thanes, Rigar Fireforge and his party were guiding their short-statured, shaggy hill ponies out of the fortress of Pax Tharkas, the hoots and laughter of their kinsmen ringing in their ears. Rigar did not speak a word for long hours, until they were well out of sight of the huge double towers of the fortress. Then, when they came to a crossing in the road, the old dwarf reined in his horse. Turning to the youngest member of the party, he said in a grim, emotionless voice, Continue north, Darren Ironfist. The old dwarf drew forth a battered leather pouch. Reaching inside, he pulled out his last gold piece. For a long moment, he stood staring at it. Then he pressed it into the hands of the dwarf. Here, by passage across the new sea... Find this Fistandantilus and tell him. Tell him... Rigar paused, realizing the enormity of his action. But he had no choice. This had been decided before he left. Scowling, he snarled. Tell him that, when he gets here, we'll have an army waiting to fight for him. Chapter 2 The night was cold and dark over the lands of Salamnia. The stars above gleamed with a sparkling, brittle light. The constellations of the Platinum Dragon, Paladin, and Tachesis, Queen of Darkness, circled each other endlessly around Galene's scales of balance. It would be two hundred years or more before these same constellations vanished from the skies, as the gods and men waged war over Kren, 
For now, each was content with watching the other. If either god had happened to glance down, he or she would, perhaps, have been amused to see what appeared to be mankind's feeble attempts to imitate their celestial glory. On the plains of Salamnia, outside the mountain fortress city of Garnet, campfires dotted the flat grasslands, lighting the night below as the stars lit the night above. The Army of Fistandantilus The flames of the campfires were reflected in shield and breastplate danced off sword blades, and flashed on spear tip. The fires shone on faces bright with hope and newfound pride. They burned in the dark eyes of the camp followers and leaped up to light the merry play of the children. Around the campfires stood or sat groups of men, talking and laughing, eating and drinking, working over their equipment. The night air was filled with jests and oaths and tall tales. Here and there were groans of pain, as men rubbed shoulders and arms that ached from unaccustomed exercise. Hands calloused from swinging hoes were blistered from wielding spears. But these were accepted with good-natured shrugs. They could watch their children play around the campfires and know that they had eaten, if not well, at least adequately that night. They could face their wives with pride. For the first time in years, these men had a goal, a purpose in their lives. There were some who knew this goal might well be death, but those who knew this recognized and understood it and made the choice to remain anyway. After all, said Garrett to himself as his replacement came to relieve him of his guard duty, death comes to all. Better a man meet it in the blazing sunlight, his sword flashing in his hand, than to have it come creeping up on him in the night unawares or clutch at him with foul, diseased hands. The young man, now that he was off duty, returned to his campfire and retrieved a thick cloak from his bedroll. Hastily gulping down a bowl of rabbit stew, he then walked among the campfires. Headed for the outskirts of the camp, he walked with purpose, ignoring many invitations to join friends around their fires. These he waved off genially and continued on his way. Few thought anything of this. A great many fled the lights of the fires at night. The shadows were warm with soft sighs and murmurs and sweet laughter. Derek did have an appointment in the shadows, but it was not with a lover, though several young women in camp would have been more than happy to share the night with the handsome young nobleman. Coming to a large boulder, far from camp and far from other company, Derek wrapped his cloak about him, sat down, and waited. He did not wait long. Derek, said a hesitant voice. Michael, Garrett cried warmly, rising to his feet. The two men clasped hands and then, overcome, embraced each other warmly. I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw you ride into camp today, cousin, Garrett continued, gripping the other young man's hand as though afraid to let him go, afraid he might disappear into the darkness. Nor I you, said Michael, holding fast to his kinsman and trying to rid his throat of a huskiness it seemed to have developed. Coughing, he sat down on the boulder, and Garrick joined him. Both remained silent for a few moments as they cleared their throats and pretended to be stern and soldierly. I thought it was a ghost, Michael said with a hollow attempt at a laugh. We heard you were dead. His voice died, and he coughed again. Confounded damp weather, he muttered. Gets into man's windpipes. I escaped, Garrick said quietly. But my father and my mother and my sister were not so lucky. Anne, Michael murmured, pain in his voice. 
She died quickly, Garrick said quietly, as did my mother. My father saw to that before the mob butchered him, made them mad. They mutilated his body. Garrick choked. Michael gripped his arm in sympathy. A noble man, your father. He died as a true knight, defending his home. A better death than for some, he added grimly, causing Garrick to look at him with a sharp, penetrating gaze. But what is your story? How did you get away from the mob? Where have you been this last year? I did not get away from them, Garrick said bitterly. I arrived when it was all over. Where I had been did not matter. The young man flushed. But I should have been with them, to die with them. No, your father would not have wanted that, Michael shook his head. You live. You will carry on the name. Garrick frowned. His eyes glinted darkly. Perhaps, though I have not lain with a woman since, he shook his head. At any rate, I could only do for them what I could. I set fire to the castle. Michael gasped, but Garrick continued, unhearing, so that the mob should not take it over. My family's ashes remain there, among the blackened stones of the hall my great-great-grandfather built. Then I rode aimlessly for a time, not much caring what happened to me. Finally, I met up with a group of other men, many like myself, driven from their homes for various reasons. They asked no questions. They cared nothing about me, except that I could wield a sword with skill. I joined them, and we lived off our wits. Bandits? Michael asked, trying to keep a startled tone from his voice and failing, apparently, for Garrick cast him a dark glance. Yes, bandits, the young man answered coldly. Does that shock you, that a knight of Salamnia should so forget the code and the measure that he joins with bandits? I'll ask you this, Michael. Where were the code and the measure when they murdered my father, your uncle? Where are they anywhere in this wretched land? Nowhere, perhaps, Michael returned steadily, except in our hearts. Garrick was silent. Then he began to weep, harsh sobs that tore at his body. His cousin put his arm around him, holding him close. Garrick gave a shuddering sigh, wiping his tears with the back of his hand. I have not cried once since I found them, he said in a muffled voice. And you are right, cousin. Living with robbers, I have sunk into a pit from which I might not have escaped but for the general. This Caramon? Garrick nodded. We ambushed him and his party one night, and that opened my eyes. Before, I had always robbed people without much thought, or sometimes I even enjoyed it, telling myself it was dogs like these who had murdered my father. But in this party there was a woman and a magic user. The wizard was ill. I hit him, and he crumpled at my touch like a broken doll. And the woman, I knew what they would do to her, and the thought sickened me. But I was afraid of the leader. Steeltoe, they called him. He was a beast, half ogre. But the general challenged him. I saw true nobility that night, a man willing to give his life to protect those weaker than himself. And he won. Garrett grew calmer. As he talked, his eyes shone with admiration. I saw then what my life had become. When Caramon asked if we would come with him, I agreed, as did most of the others. But it wouldn't have mattered about them. I would have gone with them anywhere. And now you're part of his personal guard? Michael said, smiling. Garrick nodded, flushing with pleasure. I... 
I told him I was no better than the others, a bandit, a thief. But he just looked at me, as though he could see inside my soul, and smiled and said every man had to walk through a dark, starless night, and when he faced the morning, he'd be better for it. Strange, Michael said. I wonder what he meant. I think I understand, Garrick said. His glance went to the far edge of the camp where Caramon's huge tent stood, smoke from the fires curling around the fluttering silken flag that was a black streak against the stars. Sometimes I wonder if he isn't walking through his own dark night. I've seen a look on his face sometimes. Garrick shook his head. You know, he said abruptly, he and the wizard are twin brothers. Michael's eyes opened wide. Garrick confirmed it with a nod. It is a strange relationship. There's no love lost between them. One of the black robes? Michael said, snorting. I should think not. I wonder the mage even travels with us. From what I have heard, these wizards can ride the night winds and summon forces from the graves to do their battles. This one could do that, I've no doubt, Garrick replied, giving the smaller tent next to the generals a dark glance. Though I have seen him do his magic only once, back at the bandit camp, I know he is powerful. One look from his eyes, and my stomach shrivels inside of me. My blood turns to water. But, as I said, he was not well when we first met up with them. Night after night, when he still slept in his brother's tent, I heard him cough until I did not think he could draw breath again. How can a man live with such pain? I asked myself more than once. But he seemed fine when I saw him today. His health has improved greatly. He does nothing to tax it, however. Just spends all day in his tent, studying the spell books he carries with him in those great huge chests. But he's walking his dark night, too, Garrick added. A gloom hangs about him, and it's been growing the farther south we travel. He is haunted by terrible dreams. I've heard him cry out in his sleep. Horrible cries. They'd wake the dead. Michael shuddered, then sighing, looked over at Caramon's tent. I had grave misgivings about joining an army led, they say, by one of the black robes. And of all the wizards who have ever lived, this Fistandantilus is rumored to be the most powerful. I had not fully committed myself to join when I rode in today. I thought I would look things over, find out if it's true they go south to help the oppressed people of Abanasinia in their fight against mountain dwarves. Sighing again, he made a gesture as if to stroke long mustaches, but his hand stopped. He was clean-shaven, having removed the ages-old symbol of the knights, the symbol that led these days to death. Though my father still lives, Garrick, Michael continued, I think he might well trade his life for your father's death. We were given a choice by the Lord of Vingard Keep. We could stay in the city and die, or leave and live. Father would have died. I, too, if we'd had only ourselves to think of. But we could not afford the luxury of honor. A bitter day it was when we packed what we could on a mean cart and left the hall. I saw them settled in a wretched cottage in Throidal. They'll be all right, for the winter at least. Mother is strong and does the work of a man. My little brothers are good hunters. Your father? Garrick asked gently when Michael stopped talking. His heart broke that day. Michael said simply. He sits staring out the window, his sword on his lap. He has not spoken one word to anyone since the day we left the family hall. Michael suddenly clenched his fist. 
Why am I lying to you, Garrick? I don't give a damn about oppressed people in Abanasinia. I came to find the treasure, the treasure beneath the mountain, and glory, glory to bring back the light in his eyes. If we win, the knights can lift their heads once more. He too gazed at the small tent next to the large one, the small tent that had the sign of a wizard's residence hung upon it, the small tent that everyone in the camp avoided if possible. But to find this glory, led by the man called the Dark One. The knights of old would not have done so. Paladin, Paladin has forgotten us, Garrick said bitterly. We are left on our own. I know nothing of black-robed wizards. I care little about that one. I stay here and I follow because of one man, the general. If he leads me to my fortune, well and good. If not, Garrick sighed deeply. Then he has at least led me to find peace within myself. I could wish the same for him. He said beneath his breath. Then, rising, he shook off his gloomy thoughts. Michael rose too. I must return to camp and get some sleep. It is early waking tomorrow, Garrick said. We are preparing to march within the week, so I hear. Well, cousin, will you stay? Michael looked at Garrick. He looked at Caramon's tent, its bright-colored flag with the nine-pointed star fluttering in the chill air. He looked at the wizard's tent. Then he nodded. Garrick grinned widely. The two clasped hands and walked back to the campfires, arms around each other's shoulders. Tell me this, though, Michael said in a hushed voice as they walked. Is it true this Caramon keeps a witch? Chapter Three. Where are you going? Caramon demanded harshly. Stepping into his tent, his eyes blinked rapidly to try to get accustomed to the shadowy darkness after the chill glare of the autumn sun. "I'm moving out," Grisania said, carefully folding her white clerical robes and placing them in the chest that had been stored beneath her cot. Now it sat open on the floor beside her. "We've been through this," Caramon growled in a low voice, glancing behind him at the guards outside the tent entrance. He carefully lowered the tent flap. Caramon's tent was his pride and joy. Having originally belonged to a wealthy knight of Salamnia, it had been brought to Caramon as a gift by two young, stern-faced men, who, though they claimed to have found it, handled it with such skilled hands and loving care that it was obvious they had no more found it than they had found their own arms or legs. Made of some fabric none in this day and age could identify, it was so cunningly woven. That not a breath of wind penetrated even the seams. Rainwater rolled right off it. Raceland said it had been treated with some sort of oil. It was large enough for Caramon's cot. Several large chests containing maps, the money and jewels they brought from the Tower of High Sorcery, clothes and armor, plus a cot for Crisania, as well as a chest for her clothing. Still, it did not seem crowded when Caramon received visitors. Raceland slept and studied in a smaller tent made of the same fabric and construction that was pitched near his brother's. Though Caramon had offered to share the larger tent, the mage had insisted upon privacy, knowing his twin's need for solitude and quiet, and not particularly enjoying being around his brother anyway. Caramon had not argued. Crisania, however, had openly rebelled when told she must remain in Caramon's tent. In vain, Caramon argued that it was safer for her there. Stories about her witchcraft, the strange medallion of a reviled god she wore, 
and her healing of the big warrior had spread quickly through the camp and were eagerly whispered to all newcomers. The cleric never left her tent, but that dark glances followed her. Women grabbed their babies to their breasts when she came near. Small children ran from her in fear that was half mocking and half real. I am well aware of your arguments, Chrysania remarked, continuing to fold her clothes and pack them away without looking up at the big man. And I don't concede them. Oh, she stopped him as he drew a breath to speak. I've heard your stories of witch-burning. More than once. I do not doubt their validity, but that was in a day and age far removed from this one. Whose tent are you moving to, then? Caramon asked, his face flushing. My brother's? Grisania ceased folding the clothes, holding them for long moments over her arm, staring straight ahead. Her face did not change color. It grew, if possible, a shade more pale. Her lips pressed tightly together. When she answered, her voice was cold and calm as a winter's day. There is another small tent similar to his. I will live in that one. You may post a guard if you think it necessary. Grisania, I'm sorry. Caramon said, moving toward her. She still did not look at him. Reaching out his hands, he took hold of her arms, gently, and turned her around, forcing her to face him. I... I didn't mean that. Please forgive me. And yes, I think it is necessary to post a guard. But there is no one I trust, Chrysania, unless it is myself. And even then... His breathing quickened. His hands on her arms tightened almost imperceptibly. I love you, Chrysania. He said softly, You're not like any other woman I've ever known. I didn't mean to. I don't know how it happened. I I didn't even really much like you when I first met you. I thought you were cold and uncaring, wrapped up in that religion of yours. But when I saw you in the clutches of that half-ogre, I saw your courage. And when I thought about what, what they might do to you, he felt her shudder involuntarily. She still had dreams about that night. She tried to speak, but Caramon took advantage of her reaction to hurry on. I've seen you with my brother. It reminds me of the way I was in the old days. His voice grew wistful. You care for him so tenderly, so patiently. Chrysania did not break free of his grasp. She simply stood there, looking up at him with clear gray eyes, holding the folded white robe close against her chest. This, too, is a reason, Caramon, she said sadly. I have sensed your growing, now she flushed slightly, affection for me, and while I know you too well to believe you would ever force attentions on me that I would consider unwelcome, I do not feel comfortable sleeping in the same tent alone with you. Chrysania, Caramon began, his face anguished, his hands trembling as they held her. What you feel for me isn't love, Caramon, Chrysania said softly. You are lonely. You miss your wife. It is her you love. I know. I've seen the tenderness in your eyes when you talk about Tika. His face darkened at the sound of Tika's name. What would you know of love? Caramon asked abruptly, releasing his grasp and looking away. I love Tika, sure. I've loved lots of women. Tika's loved her share of men, too, I'll wager. He drew in an angry breath. That wasn't true, and he knew it. But it eased his own guilt guilt he'd been wrestling with for months. Tika's human, he continued surly. She's flesh and blood, not some pillar of ice. What do I know of love? Grisania repeated, her calm slipping, 
her gray eyes darkening in anger. I'll tell you what I know of love. I don't say it. Caramon cried in a low voice, completely losing control of himself and grabbing her in his arms. Don't say you love Raceland. He doesn't deserve your love. He's using you, just like he used me, and he'll throw you away when he's finished. Let go of me, Grisania demanded, her cheeks stained pink, her eyes a deep gray. Can't you see? Caramon cried, almost shaking her in his frustration. Are you blind? Pardon me, said a soft voice, if I am interrupting, but there is urgent news. At the sound of that soft voice, Grisania's face went white, then scarlet. Caramon, too, started at the sound, his hands loosening their hold. Grisania drew back from him and, in her haste, stumbled over the chest and fell to her knees. Her face well hidden by her long, black, flowing hair, she remained kneeling beside the chest, pretending to rearrange her things with hands that shook. Scowling, his own face flushed and ugly red, Caramon turned to face his twin. Raceland coolly regarded his brother with his mirror-like eyes. There was no expression on his face, as there had been no expression in his voice when he spoke upon first entering. But Caramon had seen, for a split second, the eyes crack. The glimpse of the dark and burning jealousy inside appalled him, hitting him an almost physical blow. But the look was gone instantly, leaving Caramon to doubt if he had truly seen it. Only the tight, knotted feeling in the pit of his stomach and the sudden bitter taste in his mouth made him believe it had been there. What news? he growled, clearing his throat. Messengers have arrived from the south, Raceland said. Yes, Caramon prompted, as his brother paused. Casting off his hood, Raceland stepped forward, his gaze holding his brother's gaze, binding them together, making the resemblance between them strong. For an instant, the mage's mask dropped. The dwarves of Thorbarden are preparing for war, Raceland hissed, his slender hand clenching into a fist. He spoke with such intense passion that Caramon blinked at him in astonishment, and Crisania raised her head to regard him with concern. Confused and uncomfortable, Caramon broke free of his brother's feverish stare and turned away, pretending to shuffle some maps on the map table. The warrior shrugged. I don't know what else you expected he said coolly. It was your idea, after all, talking of hidden wealth. We've made no secret of the fact that's where we're headed. In fact, it's practically become a recruiting slogan. Join up with Fistan Dantilus and raid the mountain. Caramon tossed this off thoughtlessly, but its effect was startling. Raceland went livid. He seemed to try to speak, but no intelligible words came from his lips, only a blood-stained froth. His sunken eyes flared as the moon on an ice-bound lake. His fist still clenched, he took a step toward his brother. Grisania sprang to her feet. Caramon, truly alarmed, took a step backward, his hand closing over the hilt of his sword. But slowly, and with a visible effort, Raceland regained control. With a vicious snarl, he turned and walked from the tent, his intense anger still so apparent, however, that the guards shivered as he passed them. Caramon remained standing, lost in confusion and fear, unable to comprehend why his brother had reacted as he did. Grisania, too, stared after Raceland in perplexity, until the sound of shouting voices outside the tent roused both of them from their thoughts. Shaking his head, Caramon walked over to the entrance. Once there, 
He half turned, but did not look at Crisania as he spoke. If we are truly preparing for war, he said coldly, I can't take time to worry about you. As I have stated before, you won't be safe in a tent by yourself, so you'll continue to sleep here. I'll leave you alone. You may be certain of that. You have my word of honor. With this, he stepped outside the tent and began conferring with his guards. Flushing in shame, yet so angry she could not speak, Crisania remained in the tent for a moment to regain her composure. Then she too walked from the tent. One glance at the guards' faces, and she realized at once that, despite the fact that she and Caramond had kept their voices low, part of their conversation had been overheard. Ignoring the curious, amused glances, she looked around quickly and saw the flutter of black robes disappearing into the forest. Returning to the tent, she caught up her cloak and, tossing it hurriedly around her shoulders, headed off in the same direction. Caramon saw Crisania enter the woods near the edge of camp. Though he had not seen Raceland, he had a pretty good idea of why Crisania was headed in that direction. He started to call to her. Though he did not know of any real danger lurking in the scraggly forest of pine trees that stood at the base of the Garnet Mountains, in these unsettled times, it was best not to take chances. As her name was on his lips, however, he saw two of his men exchange knowing looks. Caramon had a sudden vivid picture of himself, calling after the cleric like some lovesick youth, and his mouth snapped shut. Besides, here was Garrick coming up followed by a weary-looking dwarf and a tall, dark-skinned young man decked out in the furs and feathers of a barbarian. The messengers, Caramon realized, he would have to meet with them. But his gaze went once more to the forest. Crisania had vanished. A premonition of danger seized Caramon. It was so strong that he almost crashed through the trees after her, then and there. Every warrior's instinct called to him, he could put no name to his fear, but it was there. It was real. Yet he could not rush off, leaving these emissaries, while he went chasing after a girl. His men would never respect him again. He could send a guard, but that would make him look almost as foolish. There was no help for it. Let Paladin look after her, if that was what she wanted. Gritting his teeth, Caramon turned to greet the messengers and led them into his tent. Once there... Once he had made them comfortable and had exchanged formal and meaningless pleasantries, once food had been brought and drinks poured, he excused himself and slipped out the back. Footsteps in the sand leading me on. Looking up, I see the scaffold, the hooded figure with its head on the block, the hooded figure of the executioner, the sharp blade of the axe glinting in the burning sun. The axe falls. The victim's severed head rolls on the wooden platform. The hood comes off. My head, Raceland whispered feverishly, twisting his thin hands together in anguish. The executioner, laughing, removes his hood, revealing. My face, Raceland murmured, his fear spreading through his body like a malign growth, making him sweat and chill by turns. Clutching at his head, he tried to banish the evil visions that haunted his dreams continually, night after night, and lingered to disturb his waking hours as well, turning all he ate or drank to ashes in his mouth. But they would not depart. Master of past and present, Raceland laughed hollowly, bitter mocking laughter. I am master of nothing. 
all this power, and I am trapped, trapped, following in his footsteps, knowing that every second that passes has passed before. I see people I've never met, yet I know them. I hear the echo of my own words before I speak them. This face, his hands pressed against his cheeks. This face, his face, not mine, not mine. Who am I? Am I my own executioner? His voice rose to a shriek, in a frenzy, not realizing what he was doing. Raceland began to claw at his skin with his nails, as though his face were a mask, and he could tear it from his bones. Stop, Raceland! What are you doing? Stop, please! He could barely hear the voice. Firm but gentle hands grasped his wrists, and he fought them, struggling. But then the madness passed. The dark and frightful waters in which he had been drowning receded, leaving him calm and drained. Once more, he could see and feel and hear. His face stung. Looking down, he saw blood on his nails. Raceland. It was Crisania's voice. Lifting his gaze, he saw her standing before him, holding his hands away from his face, her eyes wide and filled with concern. "I'm all right," Raceland said coldly. "Leave me alone." But even as he spoke, he sighed and lowered his head again, shuddering as the horror of the dream washed over him. Pulling a clean cloth from his pocket, he began to dab at the wounds on his face. "No, you're not," Crisania murmured. Taking the cloth from his shaking hands and gently touching the bleeding gouges, please let me do this," she said, as he snarled something unintelligible. "I know you won't let me heal you, but there is a clean stream near. Come, drink some water, rest, and let me wash these." Sharp, bitter words were on Raceland's lips. He raised a hand to thrust her away, but then he realized that he didn't want her to leave. The darkness of the dream receded when she was with him. The touch of warm human flesh was comforting after the cold fingers of death, and so he nodded with a weary sigh. Her face pale with anguish and concern, Crisania put her arm around him to support his faltering steps, and Raceland allowed himself to be led through the forest, acutely conscious of the warmth and the motion of her body next to his. Reaching the bank of the stream. The archmage sat down upon a large flat rock, warmed by the autumn sun. Crisania dipped her cloth in the water, and kneeling next to him, cleaned the wounds on his face. Dying leaves fell around them, muffling sound, falling into the stream to be whisked away by the water. Raceland did not speak. His gaze followed the path of the leaves, watching as each clung to the branch with its last feeble strength. Watching as the ruthless wind tore it from its hold, watching as it swirled in the air to fall into the water, watching as it was carried off into oblivion by the swift running stream. Looking past the leaves into the water, he saw the reflection of his face wavering there. He saw two long bloody marks down each cheek. He saw his eyes, no longer mirror-like, but dark and haunted. He saw fear, and he sneered at himself derisively. Tell me," said Crisania hesitantly, pausing in her ministrations and placing her hand over his. "Tell me what's wrong. I don't understand. You've been brooding ever since we left the tower. Has it something to do with the portal being gone, with what Aston has told you back in Palanthus?" Raceland did not answer. He did not even look at her. The sun was warm on his black robes, 
Her touch was warmer than the sun. But somewhere, some part of his mind was coldly balancing, calculating. Tell her? What will I gain? More than if I kept silent? Yes, draw her nearer, enfold her, wrap her up, accustom her to the darkness. I know, he said finally, speaking as if reluctantly, yet, for some reason, still not looking at her as he spoke, but staring into the water, that the portal is in a place near Thorbarden, in a magical fortress called Zaman. This I discovered from Astinus. Legend tells us that Fistan Dantilus undertook what some call the Dwarfgate Wars, so that he could claim the mountain kingdom of Thorbarden for his own. Astinus relates much the same thing in his chronicles. Raceland's voice grew bitter. Much the same thing. But read between the lines, read closely, as I should have read, but in my arrogance did not, and you will read the truth. His hands clenched. Grisania sat before him, the damp, blood-stained cloth held fast, forgotten as she listened, enthralled. Fistan Dantilus came here to do the very same thing I came here to do. Raceland's words hissed with a strange, foreboding passion. He cared nothing for Thorbarden. It was all a sham, a ruse. He wanted one thing, and that was to reach the portal. The dwarves stood in his way, as they stand in mine. They controlled the fortress then. They controlled the land for miles around it. The only way he could reach it was to start a war, so that he could get close enough to gain access to it. And so, history repeats itself. For I must do what he did. I am doing what he did. His expression bitter, he stared silently into the water. From what I have read of Astinus's chronicles, Grisania began, speaking hesitantly, the war was bound to come anyway. There has long been bad blood between the hill dwarves and their cousins. You can't blame yourself. Raceland snarled impatiently. I don't give a damn about the dwarves. They can sink into the Syrian for all I care. Now he looked at her coldly, steadily. You say you have read Astinus's work on this. If so, think. What caused the end of the Dwarfgate Wars? Chrysania's eyes grew unfocused as she sought back in her mind, trying to recall. Then her face paled. The explosion, she said softly. The explosion that destroyed the plains of Durgoth. Thousands died, and so did... So did Fistan Dantilus. Raceland said with grim emphasis. For long moments, Grisania could only stare at him. Then the full realization of what he meant sank in. Oh, but surely not, she cried, dropping the bloodstained cloth and clutching Raceland's hands with her own. You're not the same person. The circumstances are different. They must be. You've made a mistake. Raceland shook his head, smiling cynically. Gently disengaging his hand from hers, he reached out and touched her chin, raising her head so that she looked directly into his eyes. No, the circumstances are not different. I have not made a mistake. I am caught in time, rushing forward to my own doom. How do you know? How can you be certain? I know because... One other perished with Fistan Dantilus that day. Who? Grisania asked. But even before he told her, she felt a dark mantle of fear settle upon her shoulders, falling around her with a rustle as soft as the dying leaves. An old friend of yours. Raceland's smile twisted. Danubis. 
Danubus, she repeated soundlessly. Yes, Raceland replied, unconsciously letting his fingers trace along her firm jaw, cup her chin in his hand. That much I learned from Astinus. If you will recall, your cleric friend was already drawn to Fistandantilus, even though he refused to admit it to himself. He had his doubts about the church, much the same as yours. I can only assume that during those final horrifying days in Istar, Fistandantilus persuaded him to come. You didn't persuade me, Grisania interrupted firmly. I chose to come. It was my decision. Of course, Raceland said smoothly, letting go of her. He hadn't realized what he was doing, caressing her soft skin. Now, unbidden, he felt his blood stir. He found his gaze going to her curving lips, her white neck. He had a sudden vivid image of her in his brother's arms. He remembered the wild surge of jealousy he had felt. This must not happen, he reprimanded himself. It will interfere with my plans. He started to rise, but Grisania caught hold of his hand with both of hers and rested her cheek in his palm. No, she said softly, her gray eyes looking up at him, shining in the bright sunlight that filtered through the leaves, holding him with her steadfast gaze. We will alter time, you and I. You are more powerful than Fistandantilus. I am stronger in my faith than Danubis. I heard the king-priest demands of the gods. I know his mistake. Paladin will answer my prayers as he has in the past. Together we will change the ending, you and I. Caught up in the passion of her words, Grisania's eyes deepened to blue. Her skin, cool on Raceland's hand, flushed a delicate pink. Beneath his fingers, he could feel the lifeblood pulse in her neck. He felt her tenderness, her softness, her smoothness. And suddenly he was down on his knees beside her. She was in his arms. His mouth sought her lips. His lips touched her eyes, her neck. His fingers tangled in her hair. Her fragrance filled his nostrils, and the sweet ache of desire filled his body. She yielded to his fire, as she had yielded to his magic, kissing him eagerly. Raceland sank down into the soft carpet of dying leaves. Lying back, he drew Chrysania down with him, holding her in his arms. The sunlight in the blue autumn sky was brilliant, blinding him. The sun itself beat upon his black robes with an unbearable heat, almost as unbearable as the pain inside his body. Chrysania's skin was cool to his feverish touch, her lips like sweet water to a man dying of thirst. He gave himself up to the light, shutting his eyes against it, and then the shadow of a face appeared in his mind. A goddess, dark-haired, dark-eyed, exultant, victorious, laughing. No! Raceland cried. No! He shrieked in half-strangled tones as he hurled Chrysania from him. Trembling and dizzy, he staggered to his feet. His eyes burned in the sunlight. The heat upon his robes was stifling, and he felt himself gasping for air. Drawing his black hood over his head, he stood, shaking, trying to regain his composure, his control. Raceland! Grisania cried, clinging to his hand. Her voice was warm with passion. Her touch worsened the pain, even as it promised to ease it. His resolve began to crumble. The pain tore at him. Furiously, Raceland snatched his hand free. Then, his face grim, he reached out and grasped the fragile white cloth of her robes. With a jerk, he ripped it from her shoulders. 
while with the other hand he shoved her half-naked body down into the leaves. Is this what you want? he asked, his voice taut with anger. If so, wait here for my brother. He's bound to be along soon. He paused, struggling for breath. Lying on the leaves, seeing her nakedness reflected starkly in those mirror-like eyes, Krishania clutched the torn cloth to her breast and stared at him wordlessly. Is this what we have come here to attain? Raceland continued relentlessly. I thought your aim was higher, revered daughter. You boast of paladin. You boast of your powers. Do you think that this might be the answer to your prayers? That I would fall victim to your charms? That shot told. He saw her flinch, her gaze waver. Closing her eyes, she rolled over, sobbing in agony, clasping her torn robe to her body. Her black hair fell across her bare shoulders. The skin of her back was white and soft and smooth. Turning abruptly, Raceland walked away. He walked rapidly, and as he walked, he felt calm return to him. The ache of passion subsided, leaving him once more able to think clearly. His eyes caught a glimpse of movement, a flash of armor. His smile curled into a sneer. As he had predicted, there went Caramon, setting out in search of her. Well, they were welcome to each other. What did it matter to him? Reaching his tent, Raceland entered its cool, dark confines. The sneer still curled his lip, but recalling his weakness, recalling how close he'd come to failure, recalling, against his will, her soft, warm lips, it faded. Shaking, he collapsed into a chair and let his head sink into his hands. But the smile was back half an hour later, when Caramon burst into his tent. The big man's face was flushed, his eyes dilated, his hand on the hilt of his sword. I should kill you, you damn bastard, he said in a choked voice. What for this time, my brother? Raceland asked in irritation, continuing to read the spellbook he was studying. Have I murdered another of your pet kinder? You know damn well what for, Caramon snarled with an oath. Lurching forward, he grabbed the spellbook and slammed it shut. His fingers burned as they touched its night-blue binding, but he didn't even feel the pain. I found Lady Chrysania in the woods, her clothes ripped off, crying her heart out. Those marks on your face were made by my hands. Did she tell you what happened? Raceland interrupted. Yes, but did she tell you that she offered herself to me? I don't believe, and that I turned her down? Raceland continued coldly, his eyes meeting his brother's unwaveringly. You arrogant son of a... And even now, she probably sits weeping in her tent, thanking the gods that I love her enough to cherish her virtue. Raceland gave a bitter, mocking laugh that pierced Caramon like a poisoned dagger. I don't believe you, Caramon said softly. Grabbing hold of his brother's robes, he yanked Raceland from his chair. I don't believe her. She'd say anything to protect your miserable... Remove your hands, brother, Raceland said in a flat, soft whisper. I'll see you in the abyss. I said remove your hands. There was a flash of blue light, a crackle and sizzling sound, and Caramon screamed in pain, loosening his hold as a jarring, paralyzing shock surged through his body. I warned you. Raceland straightened his robes and resumed his seat. By the gods, I will kill you this time, 
Caramon said through clenched teeth, drawing his sword with a trembling hand. Then do so, Raceland snapped, looking up from the spellbook he had reopened, and get it over with. This constant threatening becomes boring. There was an odd gleam in the mage's eyes, an almost eager gleam, a gleam of invitation. Try it, he whispered, staring at his brother. Try to kill me. You will never get home again. That doesn't matter. Lost in bloodlust, overwhelmed by jealousy and hatred, Caramon took a step toward his brother, who sat, waiting, that strange, eager look upon his thin face. Try it, Raceland ordered again. Caramon raised his sword. General Caramon! Alarmed voices shouted outside. There was the sound of running footsteps. With an oath, Caramon checked his swing and hesitated, half-blinded by tears of rage, staring grimly at his brother. General, where are you? The voices sounded closer, and there were the answering voices of his guard, directing them to Raceland's tent. Here, Caramon finally shouted. Turning from his brother, he thrust the sword back into its scabbard and yanked open the tent flap. What is it? General, I... Sir, your hands, they're burned. How... Never mind, what's the matter? The witch, sir, she's gone. Gone? Caramon repeated in alarm. Casting his brother a vicious glance, the big man hurried out of the tent. Raceland heard his booming voice demanding explanations, the men giving them. Raceland did not listen. He closed his eyes with a sigh. Caramon had not been allowed to kill him. Ahead of him, stretching out before him in a straight, narrow line, the footsteps led inexorably on. Chapter 4 Caramon had once complimented her on her riding skill. Until leaving Palanthus with Tanisaf Elvin to ride south to seek the magical forest of Weyrath, Chrysania had never been nearer a horse than seated inside one of her father's elegant carriages. Women of Palanthus did not ride, not even for pleasure, as did the other Salamnic women. But that had been in her other life. Her other life. Chrysania smiled grimly to herself as she leaned over her mount's neck and dug her heels into its flanks, urging it forward at a trot. How far away it seemed, long ago and distant. She checked a sigh, ducking her head to avoid some low-hanging branches. She did not look behind her. Pursuit would not be very swift in coming, she hoped. There were the messengers. Caramon would have to deal with them first. And he dared not send any of his guards out without him. Not after the witch. Suddenly, Chrysania laughed. If anyone ever looked like a witch, I do. She had not bothered to change her torn robes. When Caramon had found her in the woods, he had fastened them together with clasps from his cloak. The robes had ceased long ago to be snowy white. From travel and wear, and being washed in streams, they had dulled to a dove-colored gray. Now, torn and mud-spattered, they fluttered around her like bedraggled feathers. Her cloak whipped out behind her as she rode. Her black hair was a tangled mass. She could scarcely see through it. She rode out of the woods. Ahead of her stretched the grasslands, and she reined in her horse for a moment to study the land lying ahead of her. The animal, used to plodding along with the ranks of the slow-moving army, was excited by this unaccustomed exercise. It shook its head and danced sideways a few steps, looking longingly at the smooth expanse of grass, begging for a run. Grisania patted its neck. Come on, boy, she urged, giving it free rein. 
nostrils flaring, the horse laid back its ears and sprang forward, galloping across the open grasslands, thrilling in its newfound freedom. Clinging to the creature's neck, Grisania gave herself up to the pleasure of her newfound freedom. The warm afternoon sun was a pleasant contrast to the sharp biting wind in her face. The rhythm of the animal's gallop, the excitement of the ride, and the faint edge of fear she always felt on horseback numbed her mind, easing the ache of her heart. As she rode, her plans crystallized in her mind, becoming clearer and sharper. Ahead of her, the land darkened with the shadows of a pine forest. Above her, to her right, the snow-capped peaks of the Garnet Mountains glistened in the bright sunshine. Giving the reins a sharp jerk to remind the animal that she was in control, Grisania slowed the horse's mad gallop and guided it toward the distant woods. Grisania had been gone from camp almost an hour before Caramon managed to get matters organized enough to set off in pursuit. As Grisania had foreseen, he had to explain the emergency to the messengers and make certain they were not offended before he could leave. This involved some time, because the plainsmen spoke very little common and no dwarven, while the dwarf spoke common fairly well. One reason he had been chosen as messenger, he couldn't understand Caramon's strange accent and was constantly forcing the big man to repeat himself. Caramon had begun trying to explain who Crescenia was and what her relationship was to him, but that proved impossible for either the dwarf or the plainsman to comprehend. Finally, Caramon gave up and told them bluntly what they were bound to hear in camp anyway, that she was his woman and she had run off. The plainsman nodded in understanding. The women of his tribe, being notably wild, occasionally took it into their heads to do the same thing. He suggested that when Caramon caught her, he have all her hair cut off, a sign of a disobedient wife. The dwarf was somewhat astonished. A dwarven woman would as soon think of running away from home and husband as she would of shaving her chin whiskers. But he reminded himself dourly. He was among humans, and what could you expect? Both bid Caramon a quick and successful journey, and settled down to enjoy the camp's stock of ale. Heaving a sigh of relief, Caramon hurried out of his tent to find that Garrick had saddled a horse and was holding it ready for him. We picked up her trail, General, the young man said, pointing. She rode north, following a small animal trail into the woods. She's on a fast horse. Garrick shook his head a moment in admiration. She stole one of the best. I'll say that for her, sir. But I wouldn't think she'd get far. Caramon mounted. Thank you, Garrick, he began, then stopped as he saw another horse being led up. What's this? he growled. I said I was going alone. I am coming too, my brother, spoke a voice from the shadows. Caramon looked around. The archmage came out of his tent, dressed in his black traveling cloak and boots. Caramon scowled, but Garrick was already respectfully helping Raceland to mount the thin, nervous black horse the archmage favored. Caramon dared not say anything in front of the men, and his brother knew it. He saw the amused glint in Raceland's eyes as he raised his head, the sunlight hitting their mirrored surface. Let's be off, then, Caramon muttered, trying to conceal his anger. Garrick, you're in command while I'm gone. I don't expect it will be long. Make certain that our guests are fed, and get those farmers back out there in the field. I want to see them spearing those straw dummies when I return, not each other. Yes, sir, Garrick said gravely, giving Caramon the night salute. A vivid memory of Sturm Brightblade came to Caramon's mind, and with it, days of his youth, 
days when he and his brother had traveled with their friends. Tannis, Flint the dwarven metalsmith, Sturm. Shaking his head, he tried to banish the memories as he guided his horse out of camp. But they returned to him more forcefully when he reached the trail into the woods and caught a glimpse of his brother riding next to him, the mage keeping his horse just a little behind the warriors as usual. Though he did not particularly like riding, Raceland rode well, as he did all things well if he set his mind to it. He did not speak nor even look at his brother, keeping his hood cast over his head, lost in his own thoughts. This was not unusual. The twins sometimes traveled for days with little verbal communication. But there was a bond between them nonetheless, a bond of blood and bone and soul. Caramon felt himself slipping into the old, easy comradeship. His anger began to melt away. It had been partly at himself anyhow. Half-turning, he spoke over his shoulder. I'm sorry about back there, Raced, he said gruffly as they rode deeper into the forest, following Chrysania's clearly marked trail. What you said was true. She did tell me that, that she... Caramon floundered, blushing. He twisted around in the saddle. That she... Damn it, Raced! Why do you have to be so rough with her? Raceland lifted his hooded head, his face now visible to his brother. I had to be rough, he said in a soft voice. I had to make her see the chasm yawning at her feet, a chasm that, if we fell into it, would destroy us all. Caramon stared at his twin in wonder. You are not human. To his astonishment, Raceland sighed. The mage's harsh, glittering eyes softened a moment. I am more human than you realize, my brother, he said in a wistful tone that went straight to Caramon's heart. Then love her, man, Caramon said, dropping back to ride beside his brother. Forget this nonsense about chasms and pits or whatever. You may be a powerful wizard, and she may be a holy cleric, but underneath those robes, you're both flesh and blood. Take her in your arms and... and... Caramon was so carried away that he checked his horse, stopping in the middle of the trail his face lit with his passion and enthusiasm. Raceland brought his horse to a stop, too. Leaning forward, he laid his hand on his brother's arm, his burning fingers searing Caramon's skin. His expression was hard, his eyes once again brittle and cold as glass. Listen to me, Caramon, and try to understand, Raceland said in an expressionless tone that made his twin shudder. I am incapable of love. Haven't you realized that yet? Oh, yes, you are right. Beneath these robes I am flesh and blood. More's the pity. Like any other man, I am capable of lust. That's all it is. Lust. He shrugged. It would probably matter little to me if I gave into it, perhaps weaken me some temporarily. Nothing more. It would certainly not affect my magic, but... His gaze went through Caramon like a sliver of ice. It would destroy Chrysania when she found out, and she would find out. You black-hearted bastard, Caramon said, through clenched teeth. Raceland raised an eyebrow. Am I? he asked simply. If I were, wouldn't I just take my pleasure as I found it? I am capable of understanding and controlling myself, unlike others. Caramon blinked. Spurring his horse, he proceeded down the trail again, lost in confusion. Somehow, his brother had managed, once again, to turn everything upside down. Suddenly he, Caramon, felt consumed with guilt. 
a prey to animal instincts he wasn't man enough to control, while his brother, by admitting he was incapable of love, appeared noble and self-sacrificing. Caramon shook his head. The two followed Crisania's trail deeper into the woods. It was easy going. She had kept to the path, never veering, never bothering even to cover her tracks. Women, Caramon muttered after a time. If she was going to have a sulking fit, why didn't she just do it the easy way and walk? Why does she have to take a blasted horseback ride halfway into the countryside? You do not understand her, my brother, Raceland said, his gaze on the trail. Such is not her intent. She has a purpose in this ride, believe me. Ta! Caramon snorted. This from the expert on women. I've been married. I know. She's ridden off in a huff, knowing we'll come after her. We'll find her somewhere along here, her horse ridden into the ground, probably lame. She'll be cold and haughty. We'll apologize, and and I'll let her have her damn tent if she wants it, and... See there? What'd I tell you? Bringing his horse to a halt, he gestured across the flat grasslands. There's a trail a blind gully dwarf could follow. Come on. Raceland did not answer, but there was a thoughtful look on his thin face as he galloped after his brother. The two followed Crisania's trail across the grasslands. They found where she entered the woods again, came to a stream, and crossed it. But there, on the bank of the stream, Caramon brought his horse to a halt. What the? He looked left and right, guiding his animal around in a circle. Raceland stopped, sighing, and leaned over the pommel of his saddle. I told you, he said grimly. She has a purpose. She is clever, my brother. Clever enough to know your mind and how it works when it does work. Caramon glowered at his twin, but said nothing. Grisania's trail had disappeared. As Raceland said, Grisania had a purpose. She was clever and intelligent. She guessed what Caramon would think, and she purposefully misled him. Though certainly not skilled in woods lore herself, for months now, she had been with those who were. Often lonely, few spoke to the witch, and often left to her own devices by Caramon, who had problems of command to deal with, and Raceland, who was wrapped up in his studies. Chrysania had little to do but ride by herself, listening to the stories of those about her and learning from them. Thus it had been a simple thing to double back on her own trail, riding her horse down the center of the stream, leaving no tracks to follow. Coming to a rocky part of the shore, where again her horse would leave no tracks, she left the stream. Entering the woods, she avoided the main trail, searching instead for one of the many smaller animal trails that led to the stream. Once on it, she covered her tracks as best she could. Although she did it crudely, she was fairly certain Caramon would not give her credit enough even for that, so she had no fear he would not follow her. If Crisania had known Raceland rode with his brother, she might have had misgivings, for the maid seemed to know her mind better than she did herself. But she didn't, so she continued ahead at a leisurely pace to rest the horse, and to give herself time to go over her plans. In her saddlebags, she carried a map, stolen from Caramon's tent. On the map was marked a small village, nestled in the mountains. It was so small, it didn't even have a name, at least not one marked on the map. But this village was her destination. Here she planned to accomplish a twofold purpose. She would alter time, and she would prove, to Caramon and his brother, and herself, that she was more than a piece of useless, even dangerous baggage. 
she would prove her own worth. Here in this village, Grisania intended to bring back the worship of the ancient gods. This was not a new thought for her. It was something she had often considered attempting, but had not for a variety of reasons. The first was that both Caramon and Raislin had absolutely forbidden her to use any clerical powers while in camp. Both feared for her life, having seen witch burnings themselves in their younger days. Raislin had, in fact, nearly been a victim himself, until rescued by Sturm and Caramon. Grisania herself had enough common sense to know that none of the men or their families traveling with the army would listen to her, all of them firmly believing that she was a witch. The thought had crossed her mind that if she could get to people who knew nothing of her, tell them her story, give them the message that the gods had not abandoned man, but that man had abandoned the gods, then they would follow her as they would follow Goldmoon two hundred years later. But it was not until she had been stung by Raceland's harsh words that she had gathered the courage to act. Even now, leading the horse at a walk through the quiet forest in the twilight, she could still hear his voice and see his flashing eyes as he reprimanded her. I deserved it, she admitted to herself. I had abandoned my faith. I was using my charms to try to bring him to me, instead of my example to bring him to Paladin. Sighing, she absently brushed her fingers through her tangled hair. If it had not been for his strength of will, I would have fallen. Her admiration for the young archmage, already strong, deepened, as Raceland had foreseen. She determined to restore his faith in her and prove herself worthy once more of his trust and regard. For, she feared, blushing, he must have a very low opinion of her now. By returning to camp with a core of followers, of true believers, she planned not only to show him that he was wrong, the time could be altered by bringing clerics into a world where before there were none, but also she hoped to extend her teachings throughout the army itself. Thinking of this, Making her plans, Grisania felt more at peace with herself than she had in the months since they'd come to this time period. For once, she was doing something on her own. She wasn't trailing along behind Raislin or being ordered about by Caramon. Her spirits rose. By her calculations, she should reach the village just before dark. The trail she was on had been steadily climbing up the side of the mountain. Now it topped a rise and then dipped down, descending into a small valley. Grisania halted the horse. There, nestled in the valley, she could at last see the village that was her destination. Something struck her as odd about the village, but she was not yet a seasoned enough traveler to have learned to trust her instincts about such things. Knowing only that she wanted to reach the village before darkness fell, and eager to put her plan into immediate action, Grisania mounted her horse once more and rode down the trail, her hand closing over the medallion of paladin she wore around her neck. Well, what do we do now? Caramon asked, sitting astride his horse and looking both up and down the stream. You're the expert on women, Raceland retorted. All right, I made a mistake, Caramon grumbled. That doesn't help us. It'll be dark soon, and then we'll never find her trail. I haven't heard you come up with any helpful suggestions he grumbled, glancing at his brother balefully. Can't you magic up something? I would have magicked up brains for you long ago, if I could have, Raceland snapped peevishly. What would you like me to do? Make her appear out of thin air, or look for her in my crystal ball? No, I won't waste my strength. 
Besides, it's not necessary. Have you a map, or did you manage to think that far ahead? I have a map, Caramon said grimly, drawing it out of his belt and handing it to his brother. You might as well water the horses and let them rest, Raceland said, sliding off his. Caramon dismounted as well and led the horses to the stream while Raceland studied the map. By the time Caramon had tethered the horses to a bush and returned to his brother, the sun was setting. Raceland held the map nearly up to his nose, trying to read it in the dusk. Caramon heard him cough and saw him hunch down into his traveling cloak. You shouldn't be out in the night air, Caramon said gruffly. Coughing again, Raceland gave him a bitter glance. I'll be all right. Shrugging, Caramon peered over his brother's shoulder at the map. Raceland pointed a slender finger at a small spot halfway up the mountainside. There, he said. Why? What would she go to some out-of-the-way place like that for? Caramon asked, frowning, puzzled. That doesn't make any sense. Because you still have not seen her purpose, Raceland returned. Thoughtfully, he rolled up the map, his eyes staring into the fading light. A dark line appeared between his brows. Well, Caramon prompted skeptically. What is this great purpose you keep mentioning? What's the matter? She has placed herself in grave danger, Raceland said suddenly, his cool voice tinged with anger. Caramon stared at him in alarm. What? How do you know? Did you see? Of course I can't see, you great idiot. Raceland snarled over his shoulder as he walked rapidly to his horse. I think. I use my brain. She is going to this village to establish the old religion. She is going there to tell them of the true gods. Name of the abyss, Caramon swore, his eyes wide. You're right, Raced, he said after a moment's thought. I've heard her talk about trying that, now that I think of it. I never believed she was serious, though. Then, seeing his brother untying his horse and preparing to mount, he hurried forward and laid his hand on his brother's bridle. Just a minute, Raced. There's nothing we can do now. We'll have to wait until morning. He gestured into the mountains. You know as well as I do that we don't dare ride those wretched trails after dark. We'd be taking a chance on the horses stumbling into a hole and breaking a leg, to say nothing of what lives in these godforsaken woods. I have my staff for light, Rayson said, motioning to the staff of Magus, snug in its leather carrier on the side of the saddle. He started to pull himself up, but a fit of coughing forced him to pause, clinging to the saddle, gasping for breath. Caramon waited until the spasm eased. Look, raced, he said in milder tones. I'm just as worried about her as you are, but I think you're overreacting. Let's be sensible. It's not as if she were riding into a den of goblins. That magical light will draw to us whatever's lurking out there in the night like moths to a candle flame. The horses are winded. You're in no shape to go on, much less fight if we have to. We'll make camp here for the night. You get some rest, and we'll start fresh in the morning. Raceland paused, his hands on his saddle, staring at his brother. It seemed as if he might argue. Then a coughing fit seized him. His hand slipped to his side. He laid his forehead against the horse's flank, as if too exhausted to move. You are right, my brother, he said when he could speak. Startled at this unusual display of weakness, Caramon almost went to help his twin, but checked himself in time. A show of concern would only bring a bitter rebuke. Acting as if nothing at all were amiss, he began untying his brother's bedroll, chatting along, not really thinking about what he was saying. 
I'll spread this out and you rest. We can probably risk a small fire, and you can heat up that potion of yours to help your cough. I've got some meat here and a few vegetables Garrick threw together for me. Caramon prattled on, not even realizing what he was saying. I'll fix up a stew. It'll be just like the old days. By the gods! He paused a moment, grinning. Even though we never knew where our next steel piece was coming from, we still ate well in those days. Do you remember? There was a spice you had. You toss it in the pot. What was it? He gazed off into the distance, as though he could part the mists of time with his eyes. Do you remember the one I'm talking about? You use it in your spellcasting, but it made damn good stews too. The name? It was like ours, Margier, Marjorie. Ha! Caramon laughed. I'll never forget the time that old master of yours caught us cooking with his spell components. I thought he'd turn himself inside out. Sighing, Caramon went back to work, tugging at the knots. You know, Raced, he said softly after a moment. I've eaten wondrous food in wondrous places since then, palaces and elf woods and all, but nothing could quite match that. I'd like to try it again to see if it was like I remember it. It'd be like old times. There was a soft rustle of cloth. Caramon stopped, aware that his brother had turned his black hooded head and was regarding him intently. Swallowing, Caramon kept his eyes fixedly on the knots he was trying to untie. He hadn't meant to make himself vulnerable, and now he waited grimly for Raceland's rebuke, the sarcastic jibe. There was another soft rustle of cloth, and then Caramon felt something soft pressed into his hand, a tiny bag. Marjoram, Raceland said in a soft whisper. The name of the spice is Marjoram. Chapter Five. It wasn't until Crescania rode into the outskirts of the village itself that she realized something was wrong. Caramon, of course, would have noticed it from his first look down at the village from the top of the hill. He would have detected the absence of smoke from the cooking fires. He would have noted the unnatural silence, no sounds of mothers calling for children, or the plodding thuds of cattle coming in from the fields, or neighbors exchanging cheerful greetings after a long day's work. He would have seen that no smoke rose from the smithy's forge, wondering uneasily at the absence of candlelight glowing from the windows. Glancing up, he would have seen with alarm the large number of carrion birds in the sky, circling. All this, Caramon or Tannis Half Elven or Raceland or any of them would have noted, and if forced to go on, he would have approached the village with hand on sword or a defensive magic spell on the lips. But it was only after Crescania cantered into the village, and staring around, wondered where everyone was, that she experienced her first glimmerings of uneasiness.